But Lord, I, I ask this morning for more than that. I, I ask for a, a supernatural empowering by your Holy Spirit. And that these words, Lord, would take root in our heart and they would pr- produce much, much fruit. And we trust you for that in Jesus' name. Amen. It's great to be with you. Can you find uh, Jonah, please, in your Bibles? We started looking at some things out of Jonah. Uh, we have been looking at Galatians for many, many weeks now, and we've taken a little detour. I do want to just, for the first couple of minutes, recap of what I said last week, for those of you that weren't here. And if you'd like to get online, also you can listen to the messages if you weren't here last week. We're talking about the gospel. We're talking about the supremacy of Christ. And... Um, We started last week by looking at Mark chapter 9, where Jesus comes down from the Mount of Transfiguration and uh, has this amazing opportunity. There's a demon-possessed boy that his disciples have been trying to cast out this demon, and they can't. And so Jesus prays for the boy and sets him free, and uh, the disciples say, Jesus, why couldn't we do the same thing? And uh, Jesus simply replies, he says, this kind comes out, by prayer. And so we had a look at that last week, and I quoted Martin Lloyd-Jones, who was a famous preacher here in England for many years in the 50s and 60s, and uh, he commented on this passage in 1959, and he said that this picture, for him, there was a picture here of the church and the world, that the church was represented by the disciples, and the world was represented by this little boy. And he said Much of the world in which we've grown up in and continue to grow up in, and our kids are growing up in, requires a radically different kind of ministry from what worked before. And so I had a look at that little phrase, this kind. This kind doesn't come out by your ordinary kind of ministry. This kind doesn't get exercised as easily as it did in the past. And we had a look at some of those things. And we tried. I tried to say this wonderful truth that we've been learning out of Galatians and rooting ourselves in the, the truth of the gospel, how can we take that and preach that into a postmodern culture? How can we take that and preach that into a multicultural culture that we live in in London and be effective? It's wonderful to be rooted in good theology and understand what Jesus has done, the power of the cross, the power of the, of the grace of God in our lives, but we need to become more effective in how we evangelize. And that's really what I'm trying to drive at over these two weeks. And he said, Lloyd-Jones said, this demon is too deep for our ordinary methods of doing ministry. And that's what we try to major on. And we had a look last week. Um, some of the methods that have been adopted over the past centuries, the methodologies to try and evangelize. And we talked about people um, that have done evangelistic meetings. And uh, those perhaps culminate, culminated in, in, in this last uh, century in Billy Graham's kind of crusade meetings. And we've seen other training programs to equip people. We've seen the Alpha Course. We've seen Evangelism Explosion. All these things to try and equip people to share their faith. And all those things were good. And I said, those things are great. But we can't just add those things on to how we do church. I said, we've, we've got to radically look at how we do church. And I said three things. And I'm, I'm going to try and summarize just to get your headspace where we were last week. There are three problems that we have in the postmodern world. And I said there were, there were three issues we need to address. One, a truth problem. A problem of truth. And these days, all claims of truth are not seen to have any basis in reality, but most people think that if you claim to have truth, you're trying to have power over them. And people are suspicious of saying that you have truth. 
So you can't say there's one way to God. You have to say there are many ways to God to appease a pluralistic society. There's a problem with guilt. And I quoted uh, Sigmund Freud who said, basically guilt is it's a neurosis in society. And so when we preach truth now, and we preach into that context, people don't respond with a, cor- a, cor- a corresponding sense of guilt and conviction. They try and explain it away. So if you have a bad temper, you go for anger management courses. If you're experiencing problems in your marriage, you simply go and uh, go to a counselor to help counsel you through your problems in your marriage. And yet for us as Christians, there's a radical coming to the cross in repentance that needs to happen first. Now, how do we get people to that place where they realize that? And thirdly, I said there was a meaning problem that we are faced with. So many people enormously skeptic about the texts that we uh, expose. And I said, I've been watching National Geographic quite a lot. And if there are a myriad of programs about these um, discoveries of so-called texts that contradict the Bible and what can we really believe and all that stuff. So there's those three problems. So how do we get the gospel across in that worldview? And uh, how do we cope with me saying that perhaps the whole church needs to change? And we've been talking about our transition personally as a church, but I've been saying the whole church, how we communicate and interact with our community needs to change. And so we had a look at the book of Jonah to try and help us understand something of what God wants to say. And I've been, uh, in, in my stuff last week, I quoted Tim Keller, a man that we uh, experienced or had the ministry of, the benefit of his ministry in Chicago. So I'm going to go back to Jonah now and um, just recap those first two points and then I've got another three or four and hopefully we'll get through them this morning. First of all, let's have a look at Jonah chapter 1, verse 1, and it says, The word of the Lord came to Jonah. The word of the Lord. And by that I said last week, the gospel came to Jonah, not a moral code, not a set of do's and don'ts, but the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. The gospel, the fullness of the word of God comes to Jonah. And that is a radical message of life. It's a radical message of sin, of salvation by the power of the blood of Jesus. It's a life transforming message. It's not some kind of little moral code that comes to Jonah. It's the word of the Lord comes to Jonah. And the first thing I said is if we're going to effectively engage our culture, we need to get back to putting the gospel at the center of our theology. And I've spoken about that in the past, and I don't want to dwell too much on that this morning. But the gospel needs to come into the center of our theology. What we think about God, not church planning. And I've, I've had to say to you, this is a journey for me, because our theology in terms of what we came to do was a church planting theology. And I said to Helen, I I have to look back over the last couple of years and say, how much of the pure gospel have I preached for nine years? Or how much of what I've preached has been about church planning or leadership or this or that? So I'm on a journey here. You with me? I'm not pointing fingers at anyone. I'm just saying, God, more of your gospel at the center of of what this church is, that we preach the gospel. And I don't mean that in an abstract, airy-fairy way, but I hope we'll see now practically how we can do that. The word of the Lord comes to Jonah. I said there's so much ignorance about Christianity in our worldview that every time we speak to people, every time we speak to people, let's try and bring them back to the pureness of the gospel. There's so much confusion. In our country, there's so much confusion. I quoted some of the problems in the Catholic Church. What about the traditional Anglican Church? It's all about, should we ordain gay people? It's all about, should we do this or do that? What about the gospel? (laughs) That needs to be back in the center. Not whether whether women are bishops or not, 
Let's not get distracted by those things. Let's preach the truth of the gospel. I said the gospel is like the hub of the wheel at the center, and everything else comes out from that. The evangelism, our, our social interaction. If Petri is going to Kyrgyzstan simply because he wants to serve, that's a good thing. But how much better that Petri goes to Kyrgyzstan because the gospel needs to be preached, and out of the preaching of the gospel, we are concerned about the poor. Thank you. Yeah, amen. The gospel needs to be the thing that impacts on all of our doctrine, every doctrine of God, of humanity, of salvation, etc. That's what I said last week. Secondly, I said this, that we have to come to a place of realizing the gospel personally. And for me, this was one of the major things that God arrested me on in my own life as I was preparing this message. Jonah hears this call from God the first time, and, and he runs in the opposite direction. He gets on a boat, he flees for Tarshish, he says, I'm out of here. And initially, we think, well, that's just fear, that's intimidation. It's, but when we get to chapter 4, we read that he does that just for a very simple thing. He didn't like the Ninevites. He says in chapter 4, he says of God, he says, I knew you were going to be merciful to these people. I knew you were going to have mercy upon them, and that's why I went, because there's something in him was hard Hearted. He knew the gospel in his head. He didn't know it in his heart. He had not yet come to the place of acknowledging in his own life that he was a sinner saved by the grace of God. And because he hadn't come to that place, really, he was self-righteous. And there was this arrogance in him that he really didn't want to go to the Ninevites because he looked down upon them. That's the reason why he didn't want to go. And so what happens? God makes sure that he ends up in the belly of the whale, in that dark place. And in the belly of the whale, he cries out to God. And we had a look at chapter 2. And there's this amazing little phrase at the end of chapter 2, this prayer that he prays. And it's simply this. Salvation comes from the Lord. That's the gospel preached in the belly of a whale. Salvation comes from the Lord. And Jonah has to be taken back to that place in the belly of the whale to realize something of the foundation that he needs to build upon. And the foundation that he needs to build upon is simply this, is that salvation comes from God and no one else. That's a profound expression of the gospel. I quoted Martin Luther. He said this, that it's the duty of anyone involved in ministry to make the gospel clear, but also to beat it into your own head and your people's heads. Martin Luther said that got to clearly, ongoingly understand what the gospel is in our own lives and make it clear to everybody else. And so I said this. I said, if we understand the doctrine of justification by faith perfectly, that's a beautiful thing. It's a wonderful thing. But unless, unless that revelation motivates us in a deep way, in a humble way, to love people, even our enemies, I'm not sure that we truly understand that we are sinners saved by grace. There needs to be a motivation out of that theology, a motivation in our heart that reaches out to people in a radical way. And that is what God has been challenging me on in my own life. And I said, well, if we don't feel that sense, uh, the other thing I said was if in the midst of our lives, if there's not joy in the midst of, of uh, a growing hope and a growing joy in the midst of difficult circumstances, perhaps we still don't realize that we are sinners saved by grace, saved by the grace of God. And our theology has to be accompanied by those two things. 
And so if we're not in that place, we have to simply say, Lord, I'm going to shake the tree. That's the expression I used. Shake the tree until the fruit falls off. I'm going to hang in until I have that revelation like John Wesley had, where he suddenly, he'd been preaching for years, and suddenly it says in the boat on the way back from America, he has this revelation of the grace of God, and it says his heart is strangely warmed, and he can't, he's never the same. We all have to have that revelation in our lives. Okay, and I said this, let's not be proclaimers of gospel truth also, but only, but also be prepared to evidence greater holiness, greater practical grace, greater character, if people are to believe our message. And Tim, Tim Keller, I quoted him, says this, religion operates on the principle, I obey, therefore I am accepted by God, and the gospel operates on the principle, I am accepted through the grace of God, Therefore, I obey. And what a different place to live from. What did R.T. say? Sanctification is a theology of gratitude. Yes. So beautiful. And I talked, I ended off last week just talking about what is revival? Surely revival is that place where Christians that are apathetic and perhaps a little bit religious and and living from a place of religion in their lives have a fresh understanding of the grace of God. A revelation comes to them again and they start living a transformed life from the inside out that is spontaneous and it is is, uh, contagious and people suddenly, there's a whole bunch of people together experience that and revival comes and we call it revival. It's not some meeting that we get together to try and manufacture God coming down. And we call it revival? No, revival is when Christians are revived from the inside out and there's a sense of wonder in our lives about what God has done for us through the cross and through the blood of Jesus. That's revival. Can anyone say amen? Because now I'm feeling insecure. (laughs) No, I'm not. So those are the first two things. The gospel at the center. Secondly, that... uh, It becomes personal to us. And then thirdly, I want to say this. And this for me, I would like to major on this this morning. Surely we need to target cities in the world in which we live with the gospel. And why do I say that? Well, let's look at uh, Jonah again. And chapter 1, verse 1, it says, God says three times, calls Jonah, says, go to that great city, Nineveh. Great city. Chapter 1, verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, arise, go to Nineveh. That great city and call out against it. Chapter two, chapter three, verse two. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I tell you. Chapter four, verse eleven. And God, after all that Jonas go, go, goes through, says this to him: Should I not pity Nineveh, that great city, in which there are more than a hundred and twenty thousand people who do not know their right hand from their left, and also much cattle? Isn't that an amazing picture of lost people? Don't know the right hand from the left hand. We are not told anywhere in the Bible that we have to live in cities, but I want to just say, for me, it's quite obvious. God simply says to Jonah, where there are lots of people, that's where I want you to be. And how much more in a city of 8 or 10 million, like London, don't we need Christians and we need churches planted in great cities? Why? Because cities are disproportionately influential in culture. Isn't it true? 
London, Paris, New York. Everyone knows that phrase. Why do they know that phrase? In the fashion world, in the arts world, in the music world. London, Paris, New York. Because what happens in London, Paris, and New York impacts the whole world. That's the truth on many, many levels. And surely, part of us preaching the gospel is, is allowing God to work in our hearts and motivate us in a transforming way, a transcendent way, if you like, that we go and allow our lives to salt the culture in major cities. We cannot complain that our cities are changing for the worse unless we are prepared to go and live and work in the city and be salt and light in the city because that's what Jesus said. He said, you are the salt, you are the light. Do not hide your light under the bushel, but be light and be salt. Surely, if Dom is, is not concerned primarily with trying to be salt in his community, in, in the banking world in, 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 in London, then what are we doing as Christians? If Ed is not doing that at IBM, if you're not doing it wherever you're working, Chris, in the computer industry, we are called to be salt and light. In the medical industry, we are called to be salt and light. Can't complain about a culture being ungodly. We need to be those responding and saying, I'm going to be salt and light in the community. Wherever God places me. Is that all right? And I love small towns. I, I love the Cotswolds. You know, I love going there. Man, it's beautiful. It's absolutely stunning. But there's not a whole lot of people there. Which is nice when you want to get away from people. But my point is, surely our dream as a church, in all that God is doing, surely our dream in the church should be that we should see many churches planted out of this one who preach the gospel practically and, and are creative to touch the city so we can impact the culture and show Christ. And that is in our hearts, that over the years, however many years we are here, there will see many, many churches planted out of this one. And what Bruce and Belinda are doing in uh, that small little town, <laughs> no, I'm just teasing, it's not, Slough's a big town. It's wonderful. They are actually doing the very thing that we're talking about. Breaking open a whole new com community. Amen? That's the third point. Fifth point. Fourth point is this. And this really is what I have... Uh, second thing that I feel God has been speaking to me about is communicating the gospel. Communicating the gospel. And I think for me... I don't know about you, but just how I've grown up, I, you, everyone wants to be the guy that preaches and 10,000 people respond. It makes us feel good when people respond and we preach, isn't it? I mean, there's nothing quite like leading a person to Christ, and, and that's a beautiful thing. How many of you have had an opportunity to pray with someone and lead them to Christ over the course of your lifetime? Okay, there's absolutely nothing so amazing as doing that. Leading someone to Christ. But I, I'm, I feel like God's speaking to me and just saying, just enjoy who I've made you to be and enjoy the process that I have for you in the preaching of the gospel. What, what do I mean by that? Well, I believe we need to live passionately. We need to preach passionately if we preach this or wherever your context is. But at the same time, be patient and allow the Holy Spirit to do His work in people's lives. I think we're too concerned about the prayer 
and getting people to put up their hand, and we miss a lot of what God wants to do in the process of getting there. Because I'm absolutely convinced that there are many stages in taking someone who's a complete pagan, who knows nothing of Christianity or the Bible or Christian worldview, and bringing that person over a number of weeks or months or years to a place where they fully embrace intimacy with Jesus. It's a process. And we too quickly want them to get to put up their hand and respond, and they don't even really know what they're doing. And then we wonder why they fall away. And this was amazing. Can you go to Jonah chapter 3, verse 4, please? This is the simplicity of the message that Jonah preaches into this pagan culture. It's one line. Look what he preaches. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Is that all? Yes. That's all he said to the city. He said, 40 more days and the city's going to be overturned. 40 more days and the city's going to be overturned. That's the sum total of what he preached. And what does the next verse say? The Ninevites believed God. I mean, that's a simple message. All that he was doing when he was preaching that message was establishing in their minds, in their worldview, that there was a God who was divine. There was God who would bring justice upon them. That's all he was doing. And look a little bit further on. The king writes a decree, and it says in verse 7, there was a proclamation in Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let... Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let him eat or drink, but let men and beasts be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. And look at this, verse 9. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. It doesn't sound to me that the king is even convinced that the gospel that he's heard at this point is one of grace and forgiveness. Would you agree? He just, he's just saying, we're going to repent. Uh, the, Jonah hasn't mentioned grace, hasn't been forgiveness. All he's preached is that there's a righteous God who's going to judge. That's all he's preached. And the people have responded to that. Chapter 3, verse 10, when God saw that they did what they did and how they turned from the evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. It seems at that stage that the city and the people in the city are not even saved in the way that we would say they are saved. And yet they embrace repentance and God relents from his anger. Isn't that amazing? God doesn't turn around to them and say, I'm now your God and you're my people. There's no transaction that seems to happen. There's no evidence that I can see of salvation. But there are important steps in the, in the worldview of these people that are moving them towards Christ. And my point is simply this. Let us be those that are committed, so committed to people that we are patient enough to gently, if it takes years, to gently move them to encourage them into a Christian worldview and into seeing Christ for who He is. And perhaps that's not going to take an instant. Are you with me? 
uh, of uh, this reading I've been uh, doing. Tim Keller quotes, he says, there are four things that we need to willingly help people through in, as we preach the gospel. One, in, there needs to be intelligibility, credibility, two, plausibility, and intimacy. Fourthly, and those are big fancy words, but I've just tried to take them and say, well, what do those things mean? What do those things, intelligibility and plausibility, what, is, what does it mean? I simply think it means this, that the problem is that we presume when we preach the gospel that we are, that's the people we are preaching to have some kind of Christian framework. That's the problem. And so we often, we summarize the gospel too quickly and we try to get them to that point of intimacy like I've said. But can you go with me to this portion, which for me as I, I, I studied this week, again, God just helped me to see something. Go to Acts chapter 17. You know the story well, I'm sure, but let me just read a portion again from the scripture, verse 16. Here Paul is in Athens, right? He's in Athens. And look what it says. It says, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Full of idols. Isn't that amazing? I wonder if Paul came to London, if he would be also concerned with the idols that he sees in the community. There are many. Idols of sport, idols of sex, idols of power, idols of money. He would see those things. And so what does he do? It says, he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, day by day, with those who happen to be there. So Paul engages. He starts talking. He reasons in the marketplace where he's working. He reasons in the place where they're together for celebration in the synagogue. And it says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. So in his talking with these people, some argument starts to happen. Some asked him, what is this babbler trying to say? It's like, what you're saying, buddy, is nonsense. It's just babble. It's like noise in our ears. Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And then they took him and brought him to the meeting of Erpegus, where they said to him, where we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who had lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. <laughs> That's what they like to do, sit around all day and just debate the latest ideas. Isn't that true of our culture? I don't know if people really want truth. They just want to talk about truth and oh, it's so cool to be on this journey and let's just journey together and converse together but we don't really get to any point of destination we just want to converse Paul stood up at the meeting of the uh, Areopagus and said men of Athens I see in every way that you are very religious you are very religious for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. Ah, oh, he takes his, he sees his opportunity and he takes it. And then it's beautiful. Look at this little portion. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives 
all men life and breath and everything else. From one man he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth and he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him though it is not, he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your poets have said, he quotes their own poets, he says, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. And therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think of the divine being like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man that he's appointed. He's given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. And when they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some sneered. What nonsense. And some, but others said, we want to hear you again on the subject. And at that, Paul left the council. And a few men became followers of Paul and believed. And they are listed there. Wow. Seems to me, in that pagan culture, all that Paul tried to do was to preach a sovereign God. He pointed the, the pagans of his day to the God of history, to the God who was at the center of history, and he tries to at least inspire them to think and to come to terms that there's a biblical view of reality, there's a biblical view of history, and at the end of his discourse, he mentions Jesus and the resurrection. I'm convinced that if we are going to impact our community more effectively, we have to be far more patient with people and help them to see the God of history in their lives and God at work in their lives and let that impact them deeply. And some would say that to preach the gospel, you need to say the following things. That you need to say, you are a sinner going to hell. That Jesus died on the cross, and that you need to repent and believe. And certainly that is true. But the problem is this, that if people have not yet had their minds detoxed, their worldview transformed, when you say sin, grace, and God, it's in their understanding of those things, and it's not necessarily a biblical understanding of those things. And that's the problem. And so we've got a community in where everybody just understands truth simply as what works for me. That's truth. This thing works for me. And that might be tarot cards. That might be some online guru that gives you advice. And if that works for you, that's truth. And then we preach Jesus as truth and say, no, no, Jesus is the truth. Unless people's worldview is changed, they might initially accept Christ as true and the truth until something else more Glamorous asserts itself as truth in their life, and that becomes the thing that works for them. And it's like, I've tried Jesus, doesn't work. You still with me? I'm trying not to be complicated and technical, but these things are in my heart. We've got to ask God to help us be more effective as we communicate the truth of the gospel to people. How many of you heard statements like this so many times? All religions are equally valid, and no, one can be, no one's view of God can be superior to anyone else's. How many of you have heard that? I've heard that dozens and dozens and dozens of times. You know what the irony of that is? That that statement is actually an assertion of faith. Because you can never prove that. And so the person who's saying that thing is doing exactly the same thing that they are judging other people of. We've got to point these things out to people so that God can start to work in their lives. We want long-term disciples. That's what Jesus said we should Seek to do. Make disciples, not just converts. Point number five. 
try and finish in 10 minutes. And this is the third thing that God has like really impacted me with personally in my life, that we become signs of the gospel ourselves. That we become a sign of the gospel ourselves. What do I mean by that? Well, chapter 3, verse 1, uh, we know the word of the Lord comes to Jonah again. And it says, the God says, Arise, go in and over that great city and call out against it the message that I tell you. And uh, so jo- Jonah gets up, and this time he goes to Nineveh, and he does obey God. And the second time that uh, the call of God comes to Jonah, and he responds to that. And there's a man called Sinclair Ferguson. He wrote a commentary on Jonah, and I'm going to quote a little portion out of it. And the, 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 the book is called Man Overboard, obviously referring to him being thrown out of the boat. And in this book, he says this. He says, God intends to bring life out of death. Isn't that beautiful? God intends to bring life out of death. We may well think of this as the principle behind all evangelism, that God wants to bring life out of death. Indeed, we may even call this the Jonah principle, as Jesus seems to have done. It's out of Christ's weakness that the sufficiency of his saving power will be born. So fruitful evangelism is a result of this death-producing principle. It's when we come to share spiritually in Christ's death that His power is demonstrated in our weakness and others are drawn to Him. That's exactly what happened to Jonah. So what does that mean? Simply this, that the Gospels needs to have so impacted us, our lives, that self-righteousness... That pride is broken so that we become, our lives become a sign of the gospel themselves. God wants to use people that have found strength, but out of their weakness, out of their need of Him. It's as we start to show others that Christ is helping us with our own weaknesses, with our own struggles. And as we face that in our lives, that it becomes a powerful way, an effective way of preaching the gospel. I read a story of uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones when he was living in Wales. And uh, there's a story of these older ministers. They're all kind of at the end of their ministry and they, they are gathered around and they're discussing this new young guy that's come into the community, a great preacher. And everyone is really excited about the prospects of this young man and the preaching gift that he has. And the, the, the ministers and the community was really hoping that God was going to use this man powerfully to help transform the community. And the older ministers too were very hopeful. And then one of them said this very simple thing. said, this is all well and good. But you know, I don't think that he's been humbled yet. That's a powerful illustration for me. And when I read that, it really, really impacted my heart. And the point of the story is simply this. Unless all of us, each of us, has come to a place in our lives where God has brought circumstances into our lives that deal a death blow of self-righteousness and pride in our lives, we may say that we believe the gospel of grace, but we still haven't become a sign of the gospel ourselves. We've still not yet become people that are able to help others out of our own weakness. And I believe that's what God wants. God wants a people to help others, not out of their strength, but out of their weakness. With the grace you have received, so comfort others. 
Can I conclude, please, by going to Jeremiah chapter 29? Because this was a promise that I felt God give this church. And I've written in my Bible, January 2004. Now, the context of this, this story, this portion is an amazing one. It's absolutely incredible because you know, in the context of Israel's history, they had been, this guy called Nebuchadnezzar comes along and he destroys Jerusalem. He's an Assyrian king. He destroys Jerusalem. He takes all of them off into exile, every single one of them, the Israelites. And they're all in exile. And from Jerusalem, there's a remnant still in Jerusalem. From Jerusalem, Jeremiah writes a letter to those in exile. Those have been taken away by the rivers of Babylon. Yeah? They're singing by the rivers of Babylon. They are in exile. They have had their homeland destroyed. They are not in a good place. Look what Jeremiah says. Verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I, I carried. God carried them into exile? Okay, well, we can talk about that another day. I carried them into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. This is what he says. He says, build houses, settle down, plant gardens, and eat what they produce. Marry, have sons and daughters, find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in, the, in, the, in number there, do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. Go down, please. Verse 11. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me. When you seek me with all your heart, I will be found by you, declares the Lord. Man. Isn't that powerful? No? Are you not... I'm amazed by that portion. Absolutely amazed. The Israelites are in Babylon. It's a pagan city. It's full of unbelievers. And God tells them, I want you to work for its peace. I want you to work for its prosperity. I want you to pray for it. I want you to love the city. Because in that city, where there are pagans and unbelievers, I'm going to give you my peace. And I'm going to give you a future. That's the lesson that Jonah had to learn. Jonah hadn't learned that lesson. That's what God has for all of us. I'm an immigrant into this nation. I'm so grateful for the future that this nation has given me. I'm absolutely, thoroughly thrilled to be here. And the scripture says this, we are all exiles. We are all foreigners in a foreign land. This is not our home. Our home is heaven. We are called to eternity to be with Christ one day. But while we are exiles in this nation and in this land, and we're all exiles because our home is a heavenly world, let us pray for the prosperity. Let us pray for the success of the city which we live. Let's give our time, our talent, our treasure to the pagans there to show something of the life-transforming power of the gospel. That's what God's called us to do. And that's an absolute challenge to me personally. 
God didn't ask them to do that out of a sense of duty. God said, I want you to pray for the city. I want you to love the city. I want you to love the pagans. I want you to love those that are not like you. They don't understand truth like you do. I want you to love them. And for me, God didn't ask his people to withdraw from the culture. He didn't ask them to assimilate the culture and just become like everybody else. He asked them to be distinct from the culture, but to engage it. And Jonah really helps us to see that in a different light. Because he runs from the call of God and wants what God wants him to do. Because at the end of the day, he didn't really love the unclean Ninevites. He didn't love the pagans of Nineveh. There was an arrogance in his heart. There was a self-righteousness in his heart. And he didn't care enough to want to go. You know what? I have to say, and I'm saying this with as much tenderness as I can. I look at the church, and that's much of the church today. It simply doesn't like the unwashed pagans found in the communities that it's in. It simply doesn't like the people that live there. It simply doesn't like the people that are unlike it. And so the church creates this little culture bubble. And it says, come and be part of our little culture bubble here. Come and believe like we believe. Come and be part of our little thing. But I believe the call of God, if we're going to be effective in evangelism, is that we need to be those going, spending our time, our money, our talent, pour it out into the city in which we live. Last little, I hope this is an encouragement, but I felt God rebuking me a little bit this week. Can I ask you to go for me, with me to 1 Peter? Look what Peter says. One Peter, chapter two, verse twelve. Oh well, let me go from verse eleven. Peter writing, he says, "Dear friends, I urge you, as aliens and strangers in the world, to abstain from sinful desires which war against your soul. Live." Such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day He visits us. <laughs> Isn't that amazing? Just live well amongst the pagans, just let your life be. A sign of the gospel to others. Let what God is doing on the inside of you transform people as you touch them simply by living your life. That is what God wants to encourage us in. Well, I don't know about you. I can't do this. It's too, it's too hard. I don't know how to do it. I know it's what you're saying. I can see it. You bring revelation to me, but it's so hard. How do I do that? How, how do I actually practically do that? Well, I felt this week we've been talking with some guys and there, this illustration of Jesus in the storm came to mind. And there's this amazing storm and Jesus is in the boat and he's asleep. 
And the disciples are really getting anxious. They're fretting. They say, Jesus, wake up. We're going to die. And he's asleep. And then he wakes up. And with one word, he calms the storm. <laughs> and all their anxiety and all their fear is done away with just like that. Well, Jesus did. Jesus went into the eye of the storm when he went to the cross. The perfect storm, he overcame the perfect storm on the cross. And when I look into that reality, that Jesus has done all, and in him I have all that I need for life and godliness. I have all the courage I need in him because of what he's done. Then I can boldly step out and say, Lord, I'm going to do what I can do because of what you've already done on my behalf. And I'm going to be courageous. And I'm going to find the strength, not in my own self-righteousness, but in your grace in my life that enables me to speak of the love of Christ. Let's find our strength in that place. If we can, we can then pour ourselves out for the lost and the broken in this community that we're living. And I believe we're going to see many, many saved. Let's not be like Jonah, self-righteous in our own Perfection because of Jesus, but motivated from a different place. Like Jeremiah, being content to be exiles in a foreign land, but praying for the prosperity of the city, praying for the people of the city, pouring ourselves out in love for the city because of what Christ has done in us. Amen? Can I pray with you? I really want to ask you to, um, if you know that God is speaking to you this morning, if you know that there's some things in your life that need to change, maybe you feel a little bit like Jonah, I don't know, maybe like me, over this course of this week, I've had to just come before the cross and say, Lord, I can see so many things in me that need to change. I'm not saying what those are this morning, perhaps some of those points you might identify with, but if you know that God has put some, his finger on some things in your life that you know need to be radically transformed. I want to ask you to stand. And I'm going to pray for you. I'm going to ask God would come. And that he would meet you this morning where you are, where you're at, and that he would transform you. That you too can become someone who more effectively lives in that place of allowing Jesus to impact people through your life. If you want to respond, please this morning just stand and I'm going to pray. Let's lift our hands as we do that just to say, Lord Jesus, help us. Come with your power. Come with your spirit. Thank you, Lord. Jesus, we do come as your sons and daughters. We come boldly to your throne of grace this morning. We thank you for the power of the cross. We thank you for the power of your blood in us uh, that washes us from all sin. Lord, there's something in our hearts that wants to see many come to you, wants to see many transformed by the power of the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I want to pray, as we've just talked over these last couple of weeks, God, that you would help us to become more effective, that we truly would become lovers of the community that you've placed us in, that we would love London with all of our hearts, Lord, that we would pray for its people, that we would seek the prosperity of this city so that the gospel can be preached and that we can see you transform communities. Lord, I trust this morning, all these people you see standing before you, Lord, I, I trust that in each of our lives you will be so moved by the power of your Holy Spirit 
that these things would become real and radical in us. I pray too, Lord, for the planting of many churches into London. I thank you for everyone that has been planted, but God, we cry to you and say, send more workers. So many people in the city that don't know their right hand from their left. And Lord, we want to ask that you'd move us with compassion, that the compassion of Jesus would motivate us to reach out to a lost and dying community. And I pray that the precious name of Jesus. Everyone says, Amen.